to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. This is a passage that uh, filled my heart this week because it zeroes in on the doctrine that is so essential to the Christian life, and that's the doctrine of repentance. The doctrine of repentance. Being able to be clean before God and to be right with Him relationally is the cry of our hearts. We desire that. We love and enjoy the relationship that we have in Him when we know that things are right with Him. And we go to Him based on the blood of Christ and we are entering into His throne room to receive grace time and time again, don't we? Well, it's lined out for us how to do that in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. I'm going to begin with verse 6 and read our passage. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's God's word. There's a lot on my heart, and there's a lot that I put together to speak to you regarding this morning. And first hour, I was only able to cover a portion of it, and I assume that's what's going to happen again this morning. Because what I'm trying to do is take God's word and bring it to bear on a mindset that we're all contending with, and that is the American dream. The American dream, you'll hear that phrase used time and time again during these election years as candidates are standing up front and saying, listen, we can once again as a country have the American dream. It's been defined in different ways over the centuries, though, and I think it's important to be clear on what we're saying when we say American dream. It's something, again, that It invades our thinking all the time, and it's spoken of all the time in our society, so much so that I think we don't even hear it sometimes when people say, look, America, what a great place to live in it is, what a wonderfully rich continent we live in and country that we enjoy, and we do, and it's called the American dream. What what is it that's being said when people use that phrase? In the 18th century... The dream was originating with a new world mystique where people would immigrate into this rich country to buy farmland that was low cost and available. That was the dream that people had. And then in the 19th century, the American dream is the land and dream where life can be better and richer and fuller for every man with opportunity according to his ability and giftedness. In other words, you can reach the zenith of your potential if you'll just come here to our country. In the 20th century, I remember the American dream being used this way. It's the culture of consumerism where people are saying, you know what, if I am living the American dream, it means that I've got my house, I've got my car, I've got my two kids, maybe girl and boy, I've got my white picket fence, and I basically have the leave it to beaver household, right? You know, Tony Dow lives there, Jerry Mathers, Barbara Billings, Billingsley, is that right? Hugh Beaumont, right? 
And introducing the beaver, right? Anyway, uh, that's the American dream that people have lived for in the 21st century. I think the American dream has come to be synonymous with working a job so well in your lifetime and saving money wisely so well that by age 65, you can stop working and retire. Now, before you stone me as a heretic or throw me out of the pulpit, let me just explain to you this, that I don't think any of those dreams are inherently wrong or sinful. And these are not necessarily bad goals to live for, to come to a land where you could, you could prosper, where you could reach your, your potential and have success, taking care of your family, living a life where maybe you put money away wisely to free yourself up, to not have to labor as hard as you get older. And to be able to perhaps be freed up to minister more aggressively in the church. All of these can be biblically framed goals that are, that are rich and virtuous and right on. Right on the money. However, when sin gets involved in these goals, these goals can easily turn into something that is detrimental to your own heart. These goals can become idols. They can become things that you live for and you think that you must have if you are going to be happy. A goal can turn into an expectation and an expectation into an unmet expectation. And then it can turn into coveting. And then it can turn into a motive to not like somebody or even hate somebody who's holding you back from reaching your expectation that has become an idol. That is what James is dealing with here in James 3 and 4, James 3.15, where he's saying, look, if you're living in selfishness and selfish ambition and pride and lust, then you're following the world, the flesh, and the devil's thinking. And you're living for things that you're not gaining, and so you're hating people and murdering people, and you're jealous of people, and there's contention in the church. I think oftentimes we'll read a text like this and say, you know, that was what was happening in the early church and how horrible that was. But that doesn't really translate to me now in my culture and my 21st century life. But let me tell you, a lot of times people will say, look, that's ancient. We're living in a modern age or we're living in a postmodern age or we're, you know, we're just we're trying to relate the Bible to teenagers and they wouldn't understand that. Or we're relating it to seniors, you know, there we're trying to connect it to them or or perhaps a toddler would be able to, to connect with this or that. And we, we make all kinds of excuses to excuses to frame the point of this passage out of our lives. You know, that's more for the boomer age or the Buster age, or the busted age, or the modern age, or the post. Oh, give me a break. Listen, sin is sin is sin. And what's so ingenious about the scripture is that it transcends time and culture and people group and every other excuse that people use to get out of the issues that are brought before us. This is a, a passage on repenting of the sin of making the American dream, what we live for. It goes right to the heart of where you and I live. Are you struggling with depression? Have you ever considered that it's not necessarily your genetic makeup, but it's really an unmet expectation that you nurse over and over again in your life? You know, if you frame things, things in the context of sin, guess what? There's relief that comes in the gospel. 
Because if you call a spade a spade, then a text like this can give you the answer to find more grace. God is opposed to the proud, but guess what? He promises something. He will give grace to the humble. He will lift you up. He will bring you out from the the doldrums of, of unmet expectations, of hopes that have shattered, of a person that's done you wrong, of, of this situation that you've been a victim of in your circumstances that's kept you down. This, this is a passage and a doctrine that can launch you above the, the problems of your life and the sorrows that sort of drag your heart down. Repentance, it, it's sort of flipping society's answer on its head. Society says, look, live for yourself, have self-esteem, pump yourself up, escape your problems, and transcend them that way. And the Bible says, no, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, be wretched, be mourned, and weep over your sinfulness, and God will flood grace into your life. That's what a passage like this does. And as we're approaching the doctrine of repentance, let me just give you a lead-in to review where we've been. We've been talking about how God wants you to end your war. War with each other and war that's going on in your own soul by unmet expectations gone haywire. How do you end it? Well, first of all, you redefine your enemies. Your worst enemy when you're at war with yourself is you. Why are there quarrels? Why is there fight? Well, it's, it's our own lust, and we've been talking about that. Secondly, as we looked at last week, you rediscover grace. You redefine enemies, you rediscover grace, and you remember that God jealously longs over your spirit intimately. He loves you, he knows you, he pursues you, he wants you. He wants to woo you back with his love. And that's what sort of softens our hearts to even begin to take a step in repentance. And the third step that we're looking at this morning and next is repentance. Repenting of our own sin. Redefine your enemies, rediscover God's grace, and repent of your own sins. Repentance, I'm going to define as four phases. There are four phases in true repentance. Before we look at phase one, let me just open up this doctrine. I'm not going to take this passage too quickly. I've got to have us sink down deeper and deeper into these ideas because they are so foundational for Christian growth. Repentance is part of your daily life, or it should be. I do not believe in an idea that we can reach a level of perfection where we can just forget about repenting. We are called to lean into the gospel, to meet with our God, and make things right with him daily, perhaps hourly, perhaps on the minute, because we're all sinners. We do things wrong. We have private sins that nobody knows about that we need to be dealing with in our hearts before the Lord, consciously aware that a relationship can be broken and restored in a second because of the gospel. Repentance happens when you are saved. You repent of your sins, just like the publican did. You have the publican, the tax gatherer, and then you have the Pharisee. They both went to the temple, Luke 18. The publican, the tax gatherer, he was unwilling to look up into heaven. He was beating his breast. He was consciously aware of his own sin and his own need to be made right with God. And God showed mercy upon him. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And it says he went away justified. That's salvation. That's the beginning. But guess what? It doesn't stop there throughout your whole Christian life and experience. You will repent as you are sensitive to God's holiness and your need for grace. It is part and parcel to the Christian's experience. And guess what? It should be part of even your identity. It's been said uh, that Christians from America who've gone over and served um, Christians in the former Soviet Union and other places in, in that country and world come to find Christians that are either in a private church or a public church, and those Christians are known by the populace there as repenters. Repenters. That's their theme. That's, their, that's what they're known for, is repenting, dealing seriously with sin. Repentance comes from the word metanoia. That is um, kind of a combo word of changing your mind. Noia is sort of the idea of the mind in the original Greek. And it's the idea that when you repent, you are changing your thinking about something. But let me tell you this. Repentance is not only you taking initiative to think differently... But it's also God taking the initiative first in your heart and working the gift of repentance to soften you to see your sin in the first place. Repentance is a shared effort. It's a combination of God and you as you work together, working your salvation out in fear and trembling. This is the process of Christian growth and it's the spade work of progressive sanctification where you're growing in holiness. It's what God does, and it's what we do. It's a combined effort. 2 Timothy 2, 22 through 25 talks about this gift of repentance that God could grant to people. It's a granting that God does of grace in the heart that opens us up to repent. Metanoia, the changing of the thinking. First, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and God sparks life. And our mindset is different because now we don't want the world, we want God. But then as you walk through your Christian life and experience, you stumble and fall and your relationship is kind of severed. You're still God's child, but but you're saying, God, help my mindset to change. Bring me into alignment with your word again. Lord, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want that pattern to die. And so, God, give me the grace to be sorrowful over my sin, so sorry over my sin that I'm willing to try to stop doing it. Repentance. It's our lifeblood. You remember John the Baptist in Matthew 3? He was calling the masses. He was to come and to to see the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sins of the world. He was coming as that Elijah prophet fulfillment in the New Testament. And he was calling people to a baptism of repentance. It was foreshadowing the baptism that's found in the New Covenant Church, what we perform here. And he was saying, look, come, take a stand, repent, make it public. And so the Pharisees came along and the Sadducees, and they wanted in on this. They wanted to cross all the T's and dot their I's. But John the Baptist discerning their hearts, knowing that they were coming with sort of superficial motives and no heart change from God in the first place, said, Who warned you of the wrath of God that is to come? You brood of vipers, you snakes. Who warned you of that? Then he says, listen, you need to first bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. 
In other words, when there's real heart change and it's spirit wrought and God has empowered it and your mindset is changing, there's going to be fruit that flows out of that. The fruit of repentance. The action is not repenting as much as the heart change that always will spawn real genuine fruit in your life. That's Matthew 3. 7 and 8. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, we covered it months and months ago when I talked through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a great sort of theme verse of repentance. Paul says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. True repentance, my friends, is always a 180. You're going in one direction And you have the change of heart, the change of mind. God's working in your heart so much that all of a sudden you're wanting to go in a different direction and you actually do. That's repentance. That's repentance. Let's look at phase one in repentance. There's four phases lined out in James chapter four. And these four phases are meaty. They're deliberate. They're things that we need to be meditating on and seeing happen in our lives. It's not enough just to give God lip service. Or make like a camp commitment around a campfire. It's, it's deep heart-soul surgery that's going on. Look at the first phase in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Therefore is there to connect back up with verse 6. He's just given a great promise. Quoting Proverbs chapter 3. Saying, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's saying, look, I, God pursues you and he gives you a promise. And so therefore, now it's time for you to stop what you're doing. To submit is to yield. To yield. That's sort of a tag word with point one. To yield. It's to come to a stop sign and say, okay, all right, I, I give. This is not really a warm relational moment with God. This is where you're saying, God, you are holy and I'm not. And I've got to do some damage control by your grace right now. I've got to stop right now. I'm going in this direction and it's going to drag me down. It's going to destroy my marriage. It's going to undo my employment. It's going to wreck my life. It's going to hurt other people. This sin is messing me up and and I'm going to stop. Now, how do I stop? Phase one, submission. It's the word here, hupatasso. It means to rank under. It's a military term, and it's the idea that you are ranking yourself under God as your Lord. As your Lord. You're serious about change. So serious that you're willing to put yourself out there before God and try to stop, to yield, to submit. It's used in a family context and work environment context, but there's some real sobriety here in verse 7. Submission. The verb here is an imperative verb. There are 10 imperatives that James sort of scatters out in front of us in these verses. They're gunshot-like, rapid-fire progression of imperatives. And this imperative is interesting. It stood out to me because it's a middle passive. I know we're into the grammar now, but just listen up. Middle passive in this sense. We are going to God and we are opening ourselves up to him. And the middle passive idea there is that God is working as we are allowing God to work in our lives. It's a both and. You're saying, God, I believe, but God, help my unbelief. I need your work in my life, and I'm yielding to you. I'm opening my heart 
to you. I'm obeying the command, but it's the work that you're doing first and foremost in me. It's a little different than the next command, which is resist. Because we're called to basically do one thing. We're, we're submitting and opening ourselves up, and then we're resisting the devil. But still under this tone of submission, I was thinking this week as I was reading a book I've sort of picked at um, over the months. It's called 1776. I actually just found it in a box uh, again since the move here, and I'm picking away at it again. It was written by David McCullough on the Revolutionary War. Many of you have read him. Uh, and he quotes George Washington. You know, he's the commander-in-chief and sort of um, general in charge, um, leading the beginning of the revolution against the Britons. And, uh, and basically... It's a war that's in Ticonderoga, upstate New York, and he gives this warning, this sober warning to his armies that reminded me of this idea of submitting to God. Here's a quote. He says, It may not be amiss for the troops to know that if any man in action shall presume to skulk, hide himself, or retreat from the enemy without the orders of his commanding officer, he will be instantly shot down as an example of cowardice. Something in the way that this reads makes me think that he meant what he was saying, right? We serve a living and holy God who has enlisted you and me to be part of his military. We serve him as soldiers for Christ. And if we are skulking, hiding in the shadows over sins, it's like we're defecting from the army. We dare not do that. We need to submit and do business with God and not only submit, but recognize that there's an enemy out there for whom we need to resist. The word resist here is the word stand against. It's strong language. Resist isn't the idea of running away from Satan. It's not fleeing him. It's actually standing firm against his battle, against the war that he's waging. It's not running from the world, the flesh and the devil. It's not running from demonic thinking. It's standing firm in the gospel. The same word is used in Ephesians 6, the classic warfare passage. If you look over there, Paul uses it over and over again, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Watch this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, same word, stand against the schemes of the devil. We are called to stand on the front line as the enemy is flaming darts at us, firing them at us. Stand against, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There's cosmic powers, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, here it is again, direct word, resist or stand Firm, verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. You're called to stand up, not run, not flee. Satan is to flee, we're to stand. What does this look like? What does it look like to understand that you've got an enemy that's coming after you and you are called to stand up? I was thinking of a bold Christian that I respect many things about, Martin Luther. 
And Martin Luther, you know, he is known as a man who was very sensitive to spiritual warfare and very committed to truth. In this world with devils filled, though they threaten to undo us. He speaks of how God's word is sure and how God is a mighty fortress. That's what Luther was like. He was sensitive to the battle, but he was confident in the truth. And he said, the best way, I love this, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. It's kind of bold. But if you think about it, God is greater than he is, and he cannot take us back into his kingdom. We were born in transgressions, sins, We were under the God of this age, which is Satan himself. We were under his deluding influence. We weren't able to see clear the gospel. And then there was an intervention where it says in Colossians 1 that we were transferred out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we're on God's gospel ground and Satan comes up to the fence and, and he looks over the fence at us and tries to talk us into thinking like we used to think. And he tries to seduce our own flesh to be tempted to love the American dream. To be idolatrous for things. To hate people. That's what he wants you to think like. And he can try to seduce us, but he can never fully pull us back into his army again. And so, we are to resist him. And then he's going to run from us. It's going to run from us. The word flee here back in James is very interesting to me. James chapter 4 again. It's the same word in 1 Timothy 2.22 where we are commanded by Paul to flee youthful lusts, to run from lusts. And just as quickly as we need to be running from lust, Satan's running from us. Now each, uh, each outline point that I'm putting up there for you, phase one, yield. Um, There's a command to submit and resist. And then I want to point out the fact that God gives a comforting promise, a commitment to us as a response. And the command is for us to submit and resist. But the commitment to God, to you, guess what? Is that Satan's going to flee. He's going to run. And I've thought, you know, what does it look like? You know, I can't see the unseen world. I can't control what the devil's doing or how he's tempting. I don't have that kind of power and authority. I'm just standing on the truth and God's word. What does that look like? Well, ultimately, I don't have to know, but I do know that God is committed to give me relief from this harassment and this harasser. The word devil is the word diablos, and that means that he is harassing you. He's a slanderer. He's slandering you. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, day and night before the throne of God, he's accusing you of things that you're not guilty of because of the cross. He's trying to make his case, and he's just wrong. And so we resist his temptation for us to act like we're a child of the devil when we really aren't. And then God comforts us with the promise that he's running the other direction. What does that look like? I kind of tend to think that when I'm tempted to think like the world, to want something that I think I'm entitled to and not getting, and then when that begins to die off in my heart and I begin to trust the gospel, I, I am now thinking, you know, this could be the time where Satan or his minions are running from me. 
as I am standing strong in the gospel and the grace of the cross yet again. It's warfare. Warfare, friends, it's just so important for you to understand. It's not something that's so mystical as much as it is chiefly moral. The Bible again and again calls us to obedience while we recognize that there's a spiritual dimension behind the scenes. Just think about it. The shield of faith, am I going to choose to believe or not? To extinguish fiery darts. The breastplate of righteousness, that's living the Christian life. In the context of a battle and attacks, we're just supposed to live the normal Christian life. That's the power of God against the devil. Resist. Stand strong in the battle. And he will flee from you. All right. Let's look at phase two. Phase two. Phase two in ending the war is to move. Is to move. Movement. We've yielded and now it's time to move. And I love how early this command comes in this section on repentance. Because it's relational. Repentance is an act of submission. It's ranking under But then immediately it moves into a relational tone. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Very relational. The scene here is pictured even better with the story and parable of the prodigal son. Spent all of his father's wealth shaming him, spending it on party living, living lasciviously and in sexual sin and immorality, and then also not being a good steward of his funds, loses it all and is ultimately going to die unless he eats out of the uh, trough with the pigs that he's now working to keep or whatever. I mean, that was an act- actually, it was a total, almost blasphemous thing for him to be doing to touch an animal like that under the Old Testament system would have been ceremonially making him unclean. So he's at the lowest of the lows in his position. He's going to eat the food that's given out to the swine, which is an unclean animal. And he comes to his senses and says, listen, even the slaves that are under my father have it better than I do. I'm going to go back and try to ask his forgiveness and see if he'll just put me back as a slave. The scene is set where the father is watching Looking, And this is a a personification of God himself. This is an image of how God looks for the sinner to come and repent. And he sees his son from afar off. And he just throws all pretense. He throws all custom, all tradition, and all superficial honor aside. Lifts up his robe and runs to meet his son. Not even knowing what his son is going to say to him yet. Just the act of him returning is all he needs to just run to a son. Do you realize that that is God for you? That he runs to you, that he wants you to return. He wants you to let go of something that you know about that you've got to let go. Something that you've got to come clean with God over and make right with him. And he promises, he, he gives the command, but he commits to you to draw near to you and meet you in the middle. Praise the Lord and hallelujah for that God that we have that is the true God. Right? Amen? Draw near to him and he will 
draw near to you. It's the same verb. You're drawing near to him and God is committing to do the same thing that he's commanding you to do. What kind of servant leadership is that? It's a beautiful picture of God's grace to us. He is committed to reciprocate. To reciprocate. It's boldness that we are to have when we enter into the throne room where we're throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God. Reminds me so much of 1 John 1, 9, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. This is not just the start of the Christian life where you confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not just the beginning. This is an ongoing act and duty and discipline and grace in the Christian life. The word confession is the word homo legeo. It's a great Greek word to know because it describes saying the same thing that God already knows about you. That's what homo legeo means. It means to say what God already knows. And you're, you're talking to God and you're just saying, God, I, you've given me the grace for my heart to melt once again. And I'm just going to lay out the things that you already know that are going on in my life. I can't hide it. I can't cover it. I'm just laying these things out before you. And I'm trusting and relying upon your grace to come to me in this moment. That is the confession of drawing near to God. It's making things right verbally and relationally. I mean, just think about it. When you've who've had children been in a situation where your, your child does something wrong, he hurts you or she hurts you or says something or does something or directly disobeys you, there's something that's hurt in your relationship. Now, that child or daughter is still your child and daughter for life. You're forever committed to that soul no matter what. There is unconditional love there. But there's something that's broken when sin has transpired. Something is wrong in the relationship until, until the child is willing to own what he or she has done and say the same thing that you already know that child did. Then once again, there's relationship, there's harmony, there's an opportunity to build, to grow together. And that's how it is for us as God's children. We are his child, we are his son or daughter, and he wants us to own up to what's going on so that he can pour grace into our lives in a reciprocating manner. All right, phase three. Phase three. What does phase three look like? We've so far looked at yielding and then moving towards God. Now phase three I title as change. Change. This is what we are changing and what God is changing in us at the same time. Look at verse eight again. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Let's stop there. This is ceremonial language. This is the language of the priesthood. This is the language of the priest who would be commanded to be very disciplined. Those who were set apart under the tribe of Levi to cleanse their hands and cleanse their bodies and to put on new garments as they would very carefully and very humbly approach God on the people's behalf. I still remember a professor of mine in college, he would always sort of draw up this diagram and talk about the difference between the old system, ceremonial system, 
and then what we have in Christ today. And he would talk about how if you were in your tent and you came under conviction for a sin that you had done or your child had done, and you're going, oh, I need to make things right with God. What you'd have to do is you'd have to march out of your tent, and it's kind of inconvenient, but you're going out to your barn area, and you're selecting an animal that's blameless and spotless and worthy to be presented on your behalf or on behalf of your family, and you bring that animal to you know the, the place of worship, perhaps the, the tent or the tabernacle, and you go up to the priest or priest, and they examine the animal, and you sort of tell them what you've done, and you've, you talk about it with that priest, and the priest takes the animal in and slays the animal on your behalf. That was sort of the ongoing requirement under the ceremonial system. There were those moments called the Day of Atonement, but then there was the sense in which Hebrews gives us, which says, you know, day after day there was ongoing sacrifice over and over and over again. It was a butcher shop of blood that was spilling out on behalf of the sins of the people. And the stench of the blood was in the air to show how graphic and terrible the sins that were being committed were. And then there was a once-for-all sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, once and for all, for our sins. And he's seated at the right hand on our behalf. We have such a great opportunity to draw near to God and to come with the idea that we need to change We need to change. We need to have cleansed hands and purified hearts. The symbolism in the Old Testament and the the ceremonial system of cleansing your hands and purifying your hearts, that ceremonial washing, even in the Old Testament system, came to be known as heart change. I read earlier uh, from Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Where the psalmist David said, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Is that the state of your heart this morning? Or are you living a lie? Because that's, that's what James is talking about. That's what David was talking about. Even during the old covenant system, he's going, look, if you are lifting your soul up to a lie, then don't ascend the holy hill. You've got to have clean hands, a pure heart. First Timothy, it talks about lifting holy hands. That's talking about not having anything that's under the table. You're clean. You're, you're transparent before God with your heart and your life. I was thinking about this imagery in terms of the Old Testament system. Uh, James is drawing directly from Exodus and Leviticus. Exodus chapter 30, you might want to turn there, 19 to 21. It's where Moses is giving direction to Aaron and his sons. And he says, they shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting. And when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water. And then I came to a phrase that just popped off the page at me, and it reintroduced the seriousness of approaching God. It says that they do all of this so that they may not die. They they shall wash their hands and their feet, and so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them. And then in Leviticus 16.4, it talks about how they needed to bathe their whole body in water before they would put on the ceremonial robes and turban. And they have to do this so they won't die. And I was thinking, well, who again were the sons of Aaron? You know, I, 
Nadab and Abihu, wasn't it? Yeah, Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. And how did they fare? Leviticus chapter 10. You might turn over there. Leviticus 10. They approached the Lord. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, or bowl, and put fire in it that... In it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Some, inter- some translations say strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. What happened? And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Very serious as they would approach a holy God. And God was serious about these commands, so much so that he consumed them for disobeying. Look at verse 3. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And what did Aaron do? Aaron, he threw a fit and he said, oh, you know, these were my boys and they were in the priesthood and they were serving. I mean, they might not have been doing it perfectly, you know. They, they offered this kind of fire rather than that kind of fire. And how could God do this? And oh my, no, it doesn't say that at all. It says, and Aaron held his peace. Why? He held his peace because he understood the holiness of God. It's a dreadful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. That's how seriously God is regarding our sin. You know, just because we've been introduced to Christ in the new covenant doesn't mean that we're dealing with a different God than this one. That is why hell is for real and is eternal. God is consuming people eternally for their sins. And because of the grace of the gospel that we don't want to take advantage of, but we want to rejoice in, we can enter into Christ's presence with boldness. Hebrews chapter 4 says, enter in with confidence to receive grace that's there. We're to enter into the throne room of God, but we do it with humility, with clean hands, and a pure heart. We're being real with our sin, with a real God who is really holy, who gives real grace when we come to him on his terms and not our own. Just thinking of the idolatry of um, the people of Israel, the first generation that fell in the wilderness, they've been delivered from Pharaoh and they were in the land. And in Exodus chapter 32, it talks about how they... They became unsatisfied with their situation. Remember the story? They, they wanted things to go their way on their terms in their timing. And they were thinking back about the Egyptian dream, kind of like the American dream. You know, I wish I could go back there where the food was served hot and now. And, and I don't like manna, you know. It's just becoming bland to get this again and again and again. And so I want to go back there. And so what we're going to do, Moses is up on, you know, the mountaintop. He's receiving the law of God. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a collection. Aaron, lead this collection time and let's take all the gold and put it into a mold of a golden calf and put it in the furnace and melt it down and make this golden calf statue. I thought, yeah, I've always 
questioned their choice of animal and idol worship. You know, I thought, why did they choose a golden calf? What, you know, it's kind of a wimpy idol. You know, it's like, you know, if you're going to make an idol, why'd you make it a little baby cow? It just doesn't make sense. If you've been around cows, why would you do that? The reason is this. The calf represented two things for them. Steak and chocolate milk. That's what they wanted. They, they were filled with their own appetites. And that, that calf represented life to them. And as a food source, they wanted it. And they wanted it their way when they wanted it, not God's way. Because God had promised the promised land flowing with milk and honey. So they were going to have their prosperity. They were going to have their joy. They were going to have their fill. But they had to wait on God's timetable and they were unwilling to do that and most of them or all of them who were above a certain age fell in the wilderness and never enjoyed the promised land well we should stop there we've got i've got a lot more to say and a lot more on my heart let's look at the uh, take-home points at the at the end the take-home points Take-home points, I always have them over at the table. You can get them before the worship hour if you so choose. They're also online. But I may add to these or just reiterate these again next week. Take-home point number one. Repentance is God's gift of grace to you. Just let that sink in. All that I'm talking about is grace to you. Because it's from the scripture. This is your way out from the vice grip of sin. Number two, repenting should be a regular part of your Christian life. And we've talked about that. It's not a one-time deal. This is your ongoing prayer. And I said it last week. I'll say it again. The closest you come to God where you're drawing near to him and he draws near to you is in the context of repentance. Number three. Repenting to God first is the key for gaining the courage to repent to others. Okay, just stop there. You've got to let this sink in because I haven't made this point yet. If you're struggling to come clean with somebody about something that you're doing where you've offended them, you know you're offending God, but you're offending them. Perhaps the reason you're struggling to go meet with that person is you haven't first dealt with God on the matter. If you're willing to deal with holy God about your sin then there will become a release of pressure in your life for you to be able to go to a person who you've offended. And oftentimes when we enjoy the forgiveness of God, we can go and basically give a testimony to someone and say, listen, I was struggling, I did this wrong, I I slandered you, I've been been unfaithful to you, I've done these things, and, and I have been experiencing the joy of repentance and forgiveness from God. And now I want to share that with you because I have offended you and I'm asking you now, will you forgive me? That's how it should work. We go vertically and then we go horizontally. It gives us courage. Here's a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. I thought it was pretty good. When your repentance is more notorious than your sin, then it is genuine. We're going to talk about that next time. The idea of being willing to enter into the sorrow and the level of emotion that your sin is causing between you and the Lord and between you and other people. When you're willing to confess and repent on those levels, then it is authentic. It's genuine. 
when it is spiritually driven. Number five, to do so no more. This is another quote from Luther. To do so no more is the truest repentance. Are you willing to stop? Because when you're willing to stop, we're not going to be perfect, but when we're willing to yield and say, God, I want to call it quits, please help me. That's when there's true, authentic repentance that God is working in your life. Let's pray. I would ask you now as a congregation, bow your heads and close your eyes and for you to soul search. Perhaps the Lord and I would assume that he has is targeting something in your life that is bubbling to the surface that you need to confess. I want you to take a few moments privately and confess your sin to God. Confess your sin before the Lord. Own the consequences of your sin. James 4 says, be wretched, feel the weight of it, mourn and weep. As you confess it, also remember that God gives grace to the humble. That's his promise to you, to cover your sin, for it to be completely buried, gone, and for your relationship with him to be restored. Jesus, we thank you for your throne of grace. We thank you that you have given to us promises in your word. If we will humble ourselves, you will exalt us at the proper time. And I pray that we can experience that joy of exaltation, even as a foretaste now that we would experience that in our life. Lord, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. God, we pray, give us your grace to live another day for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.